you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. That's how this rich and layered gospel story begins. Six days before Passover, and it isn't just any Passover, but rather the one that Jesus will share with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem, their last Passover meal together, or in common Christian parlance, the Last Supper. John is cueing the reader here to be aware that the tide is rising, the crisis building, the story nearing its culmination. As Jesus and his disciples journey towards Jerusalem, they have stopped in Bethany, just two miles out from the city, at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where they have this meal together. Martha is serving. Now, that should be no surprise at all. If you recall the story of Jesus' earlier visit to this home, in which Martha gets downright miffed that she's doing all the work, while her sister Mary simply sits at Jesus' feet and listens to him teach. Well, there she is again, serving away, and there's Mary again at the feet of Jesus. But wait, she's not simply sitting and listening. She's come with a jar of expensive scented ointment. Now she's rubbing it into his feet. Wait! Now she's letting down her hair and using it to wipe the ointment into the skin on his feet. Now, press pause for a minute and consider what she has done. As N.T. Wright remarks, in that context, letting down her hair was, quote, roughly equivalent at a modern polite dinner party of a woman hitching up her long skirt to the top of her thighs. You can imagine the onlooker's reaction. Had she no shame? What was she trying to say to Jesus, to the onlookers? All sorts of disturbing thoughts must have been flying round the room. John isn't describing an act that was merely unusual or unexpected. He's describing something that would have been positively scandalous. And who knows? Maybe Martha was more scandalized than anyone else in that room, watching her starry-eyed sister doing such a thing to the teacher right there as they were about to eat her carefully prepared meal. It isn't Martha who speaks up, of course, but Judas Iscariot. Why, Judas asks, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, the money given to the poor? That's not an unfair question, particularly given how Jesus typically acts towards the poor or those who are marginalized. And it was probably a very welcome question to everyone else in the room, 
because they could stop fixating on this hair and feet stuff and turn to the matter that Judas is raising. Right, Judas, that's right. That's expensive stuff. This is such a waste. John, though, will slip in this little note to the reader that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal from what was put into it. Of the four Gospels, John is the toughest on Judas. Mark barely mentions him, doesn't give much reason or background for the betrayal at all. Matthew says Judas did it for 30 pieces of silver. But then he also says that Judas tried to give it back and reverse what he'd done. Luke adds that it was on account of the Satan entering Judas that he was doing this. Well, John concurs with it having to do with the demonic, but John alone is the one who who makes this point that long before Judas was a betrayer, he was a thief. Leave her alone, Jesus replies. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. She's anointing him for his impending death, in other words. This thing that she's doing is a a kind of a a symbolic or, or a prophetic act, however aware or unaware she might have been about what it meant. Just six days before Passover, and as John tells his gospel story, every passing day intensifies the sense of Jesus approaching his death And this act is part of illustrating that. Then Jesus makes that well-known statement. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And my, my, isn't the second half of that statement a critical one? The poor you shall have with you always is the way some older translations phrased it. And sometimes that gets quoted as an excuse for not much caring about the poor, as a sort of quietest dodge or excuse, saying that things spiritual should be what occupy us, not bothering to try to change or improve the world, because, after all, the poor you shall have with you always. Jesus, though, never dodged the needs and hungers of his own world. So that's not on. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me, which is a way of saying, right now, here in this room, what Mary is doing is so significant, and she shouldn't be turned away from doing it. You will have a lifetime of opportunities to feed hungry people, to care for sick people, to visit lonely people, but first you must learn to see the meaning of what she's doing and of all that it's saying about who I am. So here's a few layers in this story to think about. N.T. Wright points out that at this point in the story, the disciples actually have no reason to think that Judas is anything but cautious, prudent, reliable, looking after the meager resources of a group 
without steady or settled income, anxious to provide for the group's needs and still have something left to give to the poor. That's all they know of him. They probably found his question about why the ointment was not sold rather than wasted. They probably found that a very fair question. And truth be told, churches and nonprofit organizations really need someone on the board who is cautious and prudent and reliable, someone who watches budgets and expenditures and asks good and hard questions. Maybe Judas started out like that, but in time, the money he had access to, his own greed, well, they got under his skin, and he began to get corrupt. From time to time, you'll hear awful stories about a treasurer of a church or community club or other nonprofit organization absconding with thousands and thousands of dollars that they've been siphoning off for years. It happens. It happens. And it's born of a kind of an idolatry that puts that money above all else. Judas targets the perceived wastefulness of Mary's action. And there are probably nods all around the room. What no one other than Jesus and Mary herself can begin to see is the poignancy, even beauty, of what she's doing. Yes, it was extravagant, but not only extravagant. As the philosopher of aesthetics, Calvin Seerveld, comments on the story, it was an open act of love, not for show, and without false modesty. There was no thought of getting something out of it. It was for a dying man. Completely unexpected, simply lovely, imaginative, gentle, and full of mercy, and beautiful. And to this, Seervold adds, the Lord God put art, this vessel of comfort and joy, into our hands, to be treated like the expensive perfume that Mary spilled over Jesus' feet, which Judas the betrayer wanted converted into cash. What we need to do is to reflect on what is the most normative artistic perfume today and how we may, may most redemptively spill it over the body of Christ and pour it like healing salve upon the many poor people who are walking our dark city streets of this world. Sierveld's point is that we need the arts, music, poetry, painting, printmaking, whatever. We need the arts and we need beauty because without them our imagines ossify, our praise goes dull and bland, our hearts get tired. What he's not saying, and I know Cal, so I can attest to this, what he's not saying is to pour everything into such things because that sort of over-extravagance becomes self-absorbing and is ultimately also an idolatry. But what if Judas had been 100% sincere? 
and honestly wanted to sell that perfumed ointment and give all the proceeds to the poor. Well, even that could be courting still another kind of idolatry, of way, a way of being in the world that is so earnestly and narrowly focused on matters of social justice and equity that it leaves barely an inch of room in which to fulfill our human need for the feast, for delight and laughter and play, for beauty and imagination and wonder and deep praise. Oh, the story, when you look at it carefully, has so many paths in and so many things of which to remind us. These are just some of the things that those oh-so-human characters in this dinner scene that John describes have to teach us or remind us of tonight on this fifth Sunday in our journey through the season of Lent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church, or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.